0: Okay, hello friends. Welcome to the Chabula and to an exciting public shiur titled of Monarchs, Minanim, and Mitochondrial DNA, where we will draw on Torah, history, and culture, and see connection between the British monarchy and a wide array of relevant medical and halachic topics. Leading us in today's fascinating shiur is Rabbi Dr. Eddie Rechman. About our speaker, Rabbi Dr. Eddie Rechman is a professor of emergency medicine and professor in the Division of Education and Bioethics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, of Yeshiva University, where he teaches Jewish medical ethics. He received his rabbinic ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University and writes and lectures internationally in the field of Jewish medical ethics. He has been a mentor of the Medical Ethics Society of Yeshiva University since its inception. His research is devoted to the interface of medical history and Jewish law. His most recent book is titled The Anatomy of Jewish Law, published by Magid. We are very pleased to be having Rabbi Dr. Reichman with us as well. Has to be uh, co-hosting this lecture with the Torah Terifua, Institute, and we welcome their audience. Uh, thank you all for being here, as well as those who will be watching later. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Rathman, for being with us, and the floor is yours.
1: Thank you so much. A tremendous uh, pleasure and s'chus to be with uh, the Chabura and the Torah Terifua Institute. I have tremendous admiration for both of your organizations, uh, they truly inspire me, uh, and not only in the substance and material that I learned, but in the methodology of harnessing uh, the modern technology to really disseminate Torah so widely. So it is—it uh, is really a tremendous schuz uh, to be to uh, be joining you today. Um, I'd like to share with you a, a, a talk that I have developed uh, very recently. Um, uh, entitled "Of Monarchs, Mennonim, and Mitochondrial DNA," uh, Jews, Medicine, and the United Kingdom: An homage, as we say uh, in America, or an homage, if you will, to uh, Queen Elizabeth II and to uh, King Charles III. The uh, the I must confess my uh, my affinity for Queen Elizabeth the third the second starts uh, some years ago when I was a child. Uh, and I went uh, to visit London, and I saw that uh, we actually sh- share the same initials e r uh, so I must have a few hundred pictures of myself with uh, uh with post boxes and the fences at the uh, palaces that have uh, that have her initials uh, uh, furthermore as i uh, as I grew older, my clinical practice of medicine is actually e r medicine. Uh, which, for those of you in the United Kingdom, that's emergency medicine. You you have A uh, and E, I think you call it, not uh, not ER. Uh, but for us in the United States, my my clinical practice is ER. Hence, hence again, my continued uh, relationship with uh, with Queen Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, what I'd like to do today is is put together for you some fascinating chapters so dating back many hundreds of years. Uh, that established the relationship uh, between Jews and medicine uh, and the United Kingdom. Some of them you will be familiar with. Some of them I suspect you will not be familiar with. Some of the connections are very clear and obvious. Some of the connections, you will excuse me, are a little bit tenuous, but I hope they will be uh, fascinating nonetheless. Uh, one, one interesting connection with, uh, uh, with King Charles uh, is the fact that uh, King Charles underwent a uh, circumcision. Uh, back in 1948, uh, which I suspect uh, all of you are, are familiar with, uh, his, uh, his Mohel uh, was an Orthodox uh, Jew whose name was uh, was Dr. Jacob Snowman. Uh, Dr. Jacob Snowman, uh, let's see, if actually, I'm just going to go off screen for a second. The, um, Dr. Jacob Snowman, in addition to being a Mohel, probably the most prominent Mohel in the Orthodox Jewish community at that time, He's also the author of this little volume, which is called "A Short History of Talmudic Medicine," um, which is uh, which I happen to have in, in my library. I only recently found out that he was uh, that he was the moel for King Charles. Uh, I was not aware of that uh, previously. This uh, this little volume is a, is a collection of uh, from the the classic works of uh, Julius preuss um, and Yehuda Leib Katz-Nelson, who are authors in the field of, uh, of biblical and Talmudic medicine. Uh, as to whether uh, the royals in general undergo circumcision, uh, you yourselves in England may have read uh, from the Jewish Chronicle uh, about a month ago, uh, two months ago, why are uh, male members of the royal family circumcised by a moel um, from January 10th? And there's been this long-standing debate that's not really our, our discussion today, some say it goes back to Queen Victoria. Um, be that as it may, uh, the it was relatively recently debunked, and uh, I'm not sure if this is a definitive article or not, uh, by Robert Darby and John Kozigen, uh entitled The British Royal Family Circumcision, Tradition, Genesis and Evolution of a Contemporary Legend. Uh, so uh, they they debunk the myth, uh, at least in their opinion, of the uh, of the royal family continuing circumcision, or if there's any Jewish association with that circumcision. <laughs> but I'd like to go back a few hundred years, uh, start back in the uh, in the early 15th century, uh, with one of the monarchs in England uh, and King Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth, in the early 1400s, became ill. Uh, and, and none of his uh, physicians were able to cure him. Uh, so he heard of a uh, very prominent physician in Italy whose name was Elia Sabato. Uh, this physician, Elias Sabato, happened to be a Jewish uh, Orthodox physician. Uh, parenthetically, he treated uh, popes and princes and, uh, and royalty in Italy. Uh, and he and he uh, sent a communique to uh, to request his presence in in England uh, and uh, Elias Savato had uh, one particular request which has been preserved in the archives uh, and that request is I pulled out the the relevant phrase for us that uh, he would only attend to King Henry the Fourth on the proviso that he could bring with him. Uh, cum decim ominibus servientibus. Uh, they could bring with him, and for those of you who are well versed in in Latin, he could bring with him this number of male servants, decim, decim male servants, uh, which means uh, he wanted to bring with him 10 male servants. Uh, now, why would you think that Elias Sabato would want to bring with him 10 male servants? So I think you can guess. Uh, he wanted to bring with him a minion uh, in order to be able to pray, in order to have a a minion for davening. So the question is, was there no minion in England at that time that he could gather? Uh, So the obvious answer to that is the Jews had been expelled centuries earlier. And in fact, uh, there was no minion, at least of professing Jews in England at that time, so he literally had to bring his own minion. I, I often uh, wonder, and I'm open to suggestions uh, if anyone has any theories why, why he specifically asked for ten. He could have asked for nine. Uh, after all, he would make the tenth person. So, uh, so my theory is, and uh, and I encourage you to uh, to make your own uh, suggestions. Uh, that since he would probably be attending to the king a fair amount of time, he would leave his his uh, minion without a minion he would leave his nine servants without a minion. So as they would have a minion, even if he left and spent a good portion of his time at the uh, at the palace, uh, he requested specifically that he bring 10, as opposed to nine. As we move forward through the monarchy, by the way, you'll see it, uh, it might help to know a little Shakespeare. Uh, as many of the monarchs will, we will be discussing uh, have plays that were written by Shakespeare about them. Uh, Richard III has a very interesting connection to uh, to Judaism and in particular to contemporary Jewish medical ethics, and in this connection, admittedly, is a little tenuous. But the uh, but the concept is is utterly fascinating, as we'll see in just a moment. Richard III ruled for a very short period of time. Um, Shakespeare also wrote a play about him, as you well know, uh, and he uh, he described his physical habitus. Uh, foul, bunchback, toad, deformed, unfinished, uh, etc. Uh, and in fact, there was, and you'll see uh, um, that it no longer is the case, but the Richard III Society uh, a number of years ago claimed that in fact uh, Shakespeare had, uh, had inappropriately maligned Richard III, uh, and they maintained that he was not uh, deformed in any way And they maintained many people's image of Richard III is influenced by Shakespeare's portrait of the poisonous bunchback toad. Uh, But in fact, if you look at the portraits, uh, they show no sign of deformity. So this debate raged uh, for quite some time. Uh, And in fact, if you were a tourist, like I was a number of times in England uh, before uh, 2010, 2011, uh, and, uh, and you were looking for the burial place or the grave of King Richard III, and you would have asked your tour guide uh, to to show you uh, his burial uh, location. Y- you would not have been uh, you would have been disappointed because no one knew where Richard III was buried uh, until until recently. Um, and what transpired in in the early uh, uh, part of the uh, of the two thousands? Uh, people began to do research to try and determine where Richard III would have been where would have been buried. And one of the areas that they suspected uh, was near a uh, an old church, uh, very close to the battleground where he's purported to have died. Uh, and, uh, and with some archaeological research, they identified an area which was underneath a parking lot in Leicester. Uh, and they began to dig there. Uh, and they found the remnants of the church. And they also found the remnants of the cemetery. And they looked in the area of the cemetery, which is designated for for people of great honor. And they found the following skeleton. Um, this is the skeleton to your left. Uh, in C2. this is how they discovered it uh, in, the, uh, in the cemetery. Um, so you will notice the skeleton, and if you take a close look at the skeleton, I, pol- I apologize if it doesn't come out so well on the, uh, on the screen, but I-, I drew a red line so you can see. Uh, a red line is where the spine is. This is his cervical spine And then uh, his thoracic spine and part of his lumbar spine begin to curve quite significantly. Um, And then we return back to the lumbar spine, which is in relatively straight position. So the skeleton that they found uh, had severe kyphoscoliosis, uh, which would be consistent with someone who was hunchback. Furthermore, uh, in the skeleton, they found uh, some severe head trauma. And uh, this is a huge hole in the occipital area, the posterior part of the head, of the uh, of the skull of this uh, skeleton that they found. And and Henry and Richard III is purported to have died on the battlefield from massive trauma, including head trauma. Uh, just an interesting uh, tangent. Uh, you shouldn't be confused between this, which is a hole in the skull, or in Yiddish Alachin cup, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure the relationship between these two. Uh, and these kinds of skulls, uh, and the reason I mention this, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll see in a moment, uh, if you go to many museums of uh, anthropology or medical history, you'll oftentimes see these skulls which have holes in the skull. These were not made by the curators uh, in order to, uh, to organize their collections. Uh, these are actually holes that were made in the skull since antiquity uh, and they, in a procedure which is called uh, trepaning or trephening. Um, it was done for a variety of reasons, po- probably for people who suffered either from seizure disorder or from psychosis to release the spirits. But you can see the people survived the procedure because there is bone growth in the skeleton subsequent to the uh, to the boring of the hole. Uh, and you may have picked up uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, this was, I believe, the Times of Israel. They discovered a trephined skull in Megiddo in, in Israel or Megiddo a square hole in an ancient skull, Middle East's earliest brain surgery found in Israel. And this trephening, we have record from thousands of years ago. It's one of the earliest known surgical procedures uh, in the history of medicine. Uh, I bring it to your attention also not only because they found such skulls in Israel, and you shouldn't get confused that Richard III has a trephined skull, but also because it appears in the Mishnah, the text of the Mishnah reference to trephining um the Mishnah accounts not for our discussion today but the Mishnah discusses a skull, uh, skulls that are mitame they convey impurity um either by touch or from being under the same enclosure called tumat ohel uh and it, and a deficient or missing skull uh does not convey impurity through uh through an ohel through an enclosure uh, but what what is considered deficient, how much has to be missing from the skull in order to render it uh, no longer uh, impure through a tumat ohel. So Beit Shammai says kimlo the size of a makdeach. What's a makdeach? Be'ezu makdeach amru, Be'katan shel rof'im. So makdeach is a drill um, to make a hole in the skull. And this is a later example of a trephining a drill uh, and the size that a small trephining drill of the physicians, uh, uh, that size hole, that would, uh, that would eliminate the, uh, from the, from the skull if it was missing, missing that map. In any case, um, they, they identified the skull and the skeleton, which, uh, uh for all intents and purposes, uh, contextually, historically, uh, seemed to be that of King Richard III. The, the question is, how could you confirm this today in the 21st century? So doing a genetic analysis on the skeleton would be nice, but if you don't have anything to, to relate it to, if you don't have family to relate it to, then it's not gonna identify it specifically as being Richard III. So what they did is the following. They did a different form of DNA testing called mitochondrial DNA testing. What's unique about mitochondrial DNA is that it is transmitted exclusively maternally from, par- from mother to child. It can actually be transmitted to the male children as well, but the male children do not transmit it uh, further. So it's a maternally transmitted gene. So what they did in an extraordinary act of genealogy is they identified two living relatives uh, who were related to the mother of King Richard III. uh, And they tested the mitochondrial DNA of the skeleton and the mitochondrial DNA of these two living relatives. And here's the, the results. In 2012, a skeleton was excavated uh, here we report the DNA analysis of both the skeletal remains and living relatives of Richard III. We find a perfect mitochondrial match, mitochondrial DNA match between the sequence obtained from the remains and one living relative of one living relative and a single base substitution when compared with a second relative. So basically, a near-perfect mitochondrial DNA, DNA match between Richard III's DNA and, and the DNA of his matrilineal, uh, maternal uh, descendants of his mother living today, which is basically a, uh, a confirmation that this was indeed Richard III's uh, skeleton. He was reburied uh, with an honorary burial in the in, uh, in church in, in Leicester. But how is it relevant to us? It's relevant to us in the following fashion. I'll share with you a scenario which hasn't transpired yet, but will probably transpire in the next uh, few decades. And the scenario is as follows. You have a, uh, a, a here, I'll put in the context of uh, of the United States, but I, I guess it could be uh, uh, equally uh, in the United Kingdom. A uh, boy brings home a, a girl for, uh, for the holidays from university, uh, and he says to his parents, you know, mom and dad, I have uh, good news and I have bad news. I found an amazing young woman. She's she's definitely the right one for me. Uh, unfortunately, however, she happens to be Catholic. However, she did a cheek swab and she sent it for, for DNA testing. And it turns out that her mitochondrial DNA is an exact match to the mitochondrial DNA of an Orthodox Jewish Rebetzin, rabbi's wife from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So the question is... Um, if she is an exact mitochondrial dna match biologically that tells us that she is a maternal descendant bas Achar bas, a maternal descendant to a woman who is known to be jewish um so could she uh, you know take her cross and switch it out for a mug and david jewish star and, and go to synagogue the next day and she's 100 percent jewish uh, so the answer is indeed uh, that may that may be the case uh, because she is she is genetically, uh, biologically Jewish. Of course, we'd have to uh, we'd have to address some of the halachic ramifications of this. Now we don't have that kind of scenario today. Like I said, I suspect we will see that in the in the not too distant future. What we do have is the following: we have a number of Jews, large populations of Jews that are coming that are coming to Israel, that are not known to be specifically Jewish. Who are those people? Uh, Russian the Russian population. Um, from the former Soviet Union, and when they want to marry in the state of Israel, they have to prove Jewishness. Many of them have no archival information to prove their Jewishness. They don't have a rabbi, local orthodox rabbi that can confirm their Jewishness. They don't have uh, any any graves that that show their relatives. There's no documentation, etc. So what researchers are doing today is researchers are doing mitochondrial DNA testing on many thousands of Jews throughout the world. And they have identified certain mutations, certain unique elements of the mitochondrial DNA that seem to be found exclusively in the Jewish population. So the question is, is this mitochondrial identification sufficient to either exclusively serve to identify these people as Jewish or perhaps as at least supplemental or corroborating evidence in, uh, in rendering someone Jewish? And this uh, this is a reference to work, Biruri Yadut, uh, which was published a few years ago, which has multiple articles on the topic. Uh, but this is the relevance of Richard III to a contemporary modern halacha, and the rabbis to this very day are still uh, still debating this uh, this issue. Moving on to our next monarch, uh, Henry VIII, Yibum or Leveret marriage, and uh, and Jewish physicians. Um, and by the way. Uh, I am not embarrassed to be corrected by those of you who have much greater knowledge in, in British history than I do. Um, feel free to correct me in the chat. Feel free to correct me uh, during the during the lecture, after the lecture. Um, uh, but in this particular scenario, the reason why this is relevant to Jewish medical history uh, and to Jewish history, interestingly, um, is the marriage of Henry VIII uh, to his first wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon. So Henry VII wanted to marry Uh, his family to establish an alliance with Spain. Um, So Ferdinand and Isabella at that time of of, uh, infamy in in Jewish history had a daughter uh, whose name was Catherine, so he married his son Arthur to Catherine. Uh, Arthur was an ill man um, and uh, he died very shortly thereafter. Uh, So then the question was, uh, uh, Henry VII wanting to retain the alliance with Spain had a creative idea and a challenge with respect to maintaining the alliance with his family in Spain. He suggested that Henry VIII, his his other son, marry Catherine of Aragon. But what was the issue? The the issue was, uh, according to the Catholic Church, uh, it might be prohibited for Arthur, for for Henry VIII, uh, who became Henry VIII, to marry Catherine of Aragon. Why? because the Bible says, <inaudible> that a man is not allowed to marry his brother's wife. It's a biblical prohibition against marrying your brother's wife even after the brother dies. But on the other hand, there is one unique scenario where not only is it permitted, it is actually obligatory for the brother to marry uh, his brother's widow. And what is that scenario? That's the scenario of leveret marriage, and that's uh, in another pasuk, in another phrase in the Bible, where it says, one brother dies, lo and he he dies childless, which was the case with Arthur. Lo His widow shouldn't be married to someone else, a stranger. Rather, she should marry his uh, his brother. Uh, the uh, the ceremony or the procedure of leverate marriage. So. In that case, the, with discussion with the Pope, they decided uh, that they would invoke levirate marriage, and uh, this way Henry VII could maintain his alliance with Spain. And, and uh, Henry, the, who became Henry VIII, married uh, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, the problem is that uh, that a number of years later, uh, she did not bear him a male heir, uh, and he wanted to uh, to do, to to uh to marry Anne Boleyn at that time or to have children with Anne Boleyn at that time so he was looking for a way to dispense with Catherine of Aragon um, so what he did is is he actually revisited this prohibition of of uh of, Ach, of, of, of marrying your uh your brother's wife and said that perhaps uh, when I married Catherine of Aragon, it was inappropriate for me to marry Catherine of Aragon. In, in halachic terminology, you wanted to be mafkia, the kiddushin, the mafreya. You wanted to revisit and say, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe that decision was wrong. Maybe, maybe leveret marriage is only uh, for the Jewish population, not for the non-Jew- non-Jewish population. And in fact, my marriage to Catherine of Aragon should be null and void. And there's much more discussion, not for this, uh, not for this forum, but. Uh, Uh, perhaps at another time. So where does he turn for advice or discussion about love and marriage? He turns to the Jews, because the Jews know a lot about this. Uh, Where does he go? He goes to Italy, or he sends messengers to Italy. Uh, Again, because there are no Jews in England at that time. The Jews had not yet returned. The Jews had been expelled from England centuries earlier and still had not returned. So so here you have, uh, and this is an article written by the Chabad rabbi in Oxford, called Henry VIII, Oxfords, Hebraists, and the Rabbis. Uh, and here he writes Rabbi Chalfon was the rub chosen by Richard Croke, um, Henry VIII's legal advisor to interpret biblical law to justify an annulment. Rabbi Chalfon claimed that due to the prohibition of Ashes Ach, Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine was null and void since Jews no longer observed the mitzvah of Yibum. He based his opinion on the psuchim in the Torah. But another physician, by the way, in those days, this was the times of the Renaissance, the rabbis, many of the rabbis were physicians. And, 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 and these two major consultants of, uh, of different advisors of, of Henry VIII were both rabbis and physicians at that time. Uh, another physician in Rav disagreed with him completely. He was Jacob and Shmuel Mantino. Um, and Pope Clement VII, it was a different pope now, by the way, than the one that had allowed uh, Henry VIII to marry through Nubum. Henry uh, Clement VII had consulted Mantino, who decided against Henry. Uh, so there you have an interesting relationship uh, between uh, Jewish medical history and uh, and Henry VIII. Uh, parenthetically, um, in the course of this debate and discussion, someone informed Henry. Uh, that the Jews have an entire tractate, two entire tractates in their Talmud that deal with the divorce. One tractate is called Gittin and another tractate called Yevamos, which deals entirely with Leveret marriage. So perhaps you'd be able to get some, glean some information, it was told to Henry. So as the story goes, Henry said, send me this uh, Talmud. Uh, uh, I would love for my, uh, my advisors to consult the Talmud. So apparently he sent away to David Bomberg, Daniel Bomberg, I'm sorry, uh, who at that time was a great uh, printer and uh, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this story. Um, and Daniel Bomberg, um, uh, in in fact, created uh, what was the very first complete printed chasse, uh from his famous printing press in uh, in Venice. Um, and, uh, and and some of you, or many of you probably know the story of uh, Jack Lunzer's acquisition, Jack Lunzer a famous collector in England, his acquisition of this famous... Uh, so-called Henry VIII Chasse. Um he, uh, he uh, was in the, the Victorian Albert Museum um, uh, some decades ago and, uh, and he happened upon a volume, the, the exhibit by the way was a history of Anglo-Jewish art and history um, to commemorate the readmission of the Jews to England under Cromwell and actually found online uh, this uh, The exhibit was in 1956. This is the uh, the exhibit catalog from the Victorian Albert where uh, Jack Lunzer had initially attended. Um, and in that exhibit, there was a volume that was labeled as Biblio Rabbinica, Biblical Bible, Rabbinic Bible. And uh, Jack Lunzer appreciated it, in fact, was not a Bible, but was actually a, a volume of the Talmud. Uh, so he went to the uh, curator and, the, uh, and found out that it came from Westminster Abbey. And he went to the sexton of Westminster Abbey. Uh, and said, do you have any more such volumes of this Talmud? And he said, yes, we have an you know, immense, we have feet of dust uh, caked up upon these volumes. So uh, so Jack Lunzer said, I'll send my team in to help uh, clean it up for you. Uh, and he sent in his team and he wanted, uh, he said, uh, you don't need these, I'll be happy to take them off your hands. Uh, and he tried for many years to, uh, to purchase them and uh, to make a very long, fascinating story short um one uh, one day he was flying uh, from sierra leone as he tells the story uh, for uh on a uh, uh viewing some diamond mines and uh, he saw that the charter for westminster abbey uh, was actually uh, um, either being auctioned or or uh, some issues with the charter of westminster abbey so he immediately made some phone calls and uh, acquired access to this charter of westminster abbey um, and uh, once he had that in hand then he called uh the sexton of westminster abbey and uh, and as he tells the story he, he said when the sexton or the shamus, so to speak picked up the phone he said mr Lanza, we've been expecting your call um, and he actually bartered the uh this uh, chart of westminster abbey for the famous uh, shots the uh, the henry the eighth the provenance of that chass is debated it's not clear whether it's the original henry the eighth or not be that as it may um uh, after Jack Lungzer passed away, uh, it was sold, that chassis was sold for $9.3 million. Um, parenthetically, the Val Madonna Trust collection uh, has some other gems in the world of Jewish medical history. Uh, one of them you may not appreciate has anything to do with Jewish medical history. <clears throat> and that's a, uh, an incunable. Incunable, for those of you who are not familiar with the world of printing, refers to books printed uh, um before the uh, before the year 1500 which are exceedingly rare in incunabula from the, the so-called cradle of printing the infancy of printing uh, and uh, and Jack Lunzer had more incunabula than any other private collector by far and, and more incunabula Hebrew incunabula than any uh, most libraries in the world one of them was a book called Nofet Tzufim, or Nofet Tzufim, which was written by Yehuda Messer Leon uh, this book is, is famous in printing history because it's the first Hebrew book published in the lifetime of its author uh, in the late 1400s. But what you may not know is that Yehuda Messerleon was a very prominent and famous physician, uh, and he also apparently taught at the University of Padua in, uh, in northern Italy. Uh, and this particular work was a work on rhetoric. And one of the stated intentions of the work was actually to train young Jewish medical students uh, in, in exercises and in the field of rhetoric to familiarize them with this concept of thinking and writing uh, and reason, which would help them in their training at the University of Padua to become physicians. Uh, what we also find in, in the Valmadonna Trust is, is an extraordinary collection of broadsides, broadsides. Uh, for those of you who go to Israel, pashkeval is the uh, is the term for these posters that are that are waxed up on the walls of uh, of Jerusalem. Um, but they had these broadsides, which were put on walls in Italy or handed out as leaflets or or sheets at events, uh, and they are called ephemera because they uh, uh, they many of them didn't survive. Um, and uh, and the Valmadonna Trust uh, or the Jack Lunzer collected hundreds of these um broadsides on many different topics including uh, marriages and and uh, and funerals and uh, and other uh, Jewish uh, Jewish rites but one area which which I first discovered when I saw the Elmadon Trust collection here in New York when it was sold at, uh, or attempted to be sold at Sotheby's uh, famous auction house or put up for sale, it was, no, it was not sold then, um, is uh, I saw this very item which really piqued my interest and, and put me on a journey for the last many years. Uh, and this item on the left is in the center of this slide is a uh, is a broadside uh, in honor of a person by the name of Solomon Lempranti. Solomon Lempranti um, is the son of the more famous Yitzchak Lompranti. Yitzchak Lompranti was a a giant in Italian Jewish history, the author of a work called Pachat Yitzchak, the very first halakhic encyclopedia ever written. Um, He, the father, was a graduate of the University of Padua, famous for accepting Jews to practice medicine, the only university at that time to do so. Um, And this poem was written in honor of the graduation of his son, um, Solomon Lompranti. And it turns out that the Velmadonna Velma Trust has uh, r- around 13 or 14 such poems, a, a unique genre of poems written exclusively for the Jewish medical graduates of the University of Padua. Um, I, th- this is not British history. This is Italian history. Um, but I've spent uh, y- many years tracking down similar poems, in addition to the 12 or so from the Velma Donna Trust collection, um, I have thus far identified over 100 examples of poems written for Jewish medical graduates of the University of Padua. Um, and actually, parenthetically, I'm, I'm speaking on a Zoom next week to a, a Jewish Italian physicians group in uh, in Italy um, on the the relationship of Italian history and uh, and uh, and and the Jews in medicine, and uh, we'll be focusing. Uh, uh, on the history of Padua, which has a very rich history. Uh, Jack Luntzer's collection, uh, some of it was sold. The high ticket items were sold. Uh, but much of it, uh, thankfully, is uh, was donated to the National Library of Israel. Uh, <clears throat> National Library of Israel, for those who are not familiar, has built this new spectacular building. I don't believe they've moved into the building yet. They will be moving in very shortly. Uh, but the building will be housing his, uh, his extraordinary collection uh for those bibliophiles amongst you uh, the new national library which uh, uh, um, you're seeing a a a picture of the stacks of the national library Uh, so the inner stacks where most of the books will be held uh, will be completely uh humanless completely contactless Uh, you are looking at the stacks Um, it's hard to see but there's a crane in the center of this picture uh, when you order a book it's like uh, pushing a button on a soda machine or a candy machine uh, or uh, an amazon uh, we in america have amazon warehouses where they have these kinds of technologies uh, all the books are kept in crates of the exact same size and it'll find that crate for you and uh, and bring it to you and, and uh, the concept of walking through the stacks uh, will be a, largely a thing of the past moving on to our next uh, monarch <clears throat> Elizabeth I, who was the daughter of Henry VIII, Henry VIII, and I believe uh, his second wife Anne Boleyn. Uh, what relationship does she have to do with medical, uh, with Jewish medical history, um, and and Jewish medical ethics? So uh, it, it turns out that Elizabeth I's main physician was a man by the name of Rodrigo Lopez. Rodrigo Lopez was a Jewish, uh, was Jewish. Uh, now he had converted to Christianity. Um, but it, it was debated and still remains debated to this very day, if he was a genuine convert to Christianity um, or whether he was a converso, someone who maintained his Judaism in private, uh, but overtly kept his, uh, his Christianity. In any case, uh, he was there was tremendous jealousy uh, about uh, Rodrigo Lopez and, and most likely because of his Jewish origins, um, he was falsely accused of attempting to poison the queen. And here you see an illustration of that, uh, Lopez compounding to poison the queen. And in fact, uh, he was put on trial and he was convicted for uh, for poisoning the queen. Uh, he, I believe he sat in the Tower of London and his execution, uh, he was executed at uh, Tyburn where most of the executions took place at that time. Um, his um, His last words, uh, when he died, when he was executed, his last words before he was executed are purported to have been, um, "I love the queen as much as I love Jesus." Um, and that phrase to this very day is still not fully understood. Maybe uh, you, you can appreciate it. now. Someone wrote a very interesting article on the bottom here. Dr. Rodrigo Lopez's last speech from the scaffold at Tyburn saying that he didn't actually say i love the queen as much as i love jesus he said i love the queen as much as i love our lord and when he said our lord he wasn't referring to jesus our lord him to him meant our lord his god the jewish uh, the jewish god so be that as it may um he had a jewish position but but there's more of a connection the connection is the following returning to shakespeare for a moment shakespeare um another one of his plays and, and even for those jews who are not familiar with most of shakespeare most jews are familiar with one play uh, and that's the merchant of venice for the famous uh, famous jewish character shylock uh, so the question often arises if indeed there were no jews in england at the time that shakespeare was writing what could he have used as a template or a model to create a jewish character uh, so some have suggested that, in fact, the queen's uh, physician, Rodrigo Lopez, was his model for the Jew that he created in uh, in the Merchant of Venice. Now, that Jew wasn't a physician. That Jew was a, a moneylender. And that was correct. Many Jews were moneylenders. And fascinatingly, uh, Jews were restricted to certain professions in this period of time. Uh, money lending was one of them, and being a physician, ironically, because that gave the Jews an immense amount of power, uh, uh, ironically, Jew, a physician was one of the few things that, uh, that, that Jews were allowed to do at that time. Uh, but in any case, um, the text of this play also raises unique questions which are relevant to a contemporary debate about Jewish medical ethics. So you're all familiar um, with, uh, with Shylock lending money to Antonio. Uh, And he says, as collateral, if you uh, if you default on your loan, I want a a pound of flesh. So as it turns out, Antonio defaults on his loan. Uh, So so Shylock comes to claim, and he and he says, the pound of flesh which I demand of him is dearly bought It's his mind, and I will have it. If you deny me, fee upon your law. There is no force in the decrees of Venice. I stand for judgment. Answer: Shall I have it? So the question is, if this were a halachic debate. Would it in fact be permissible for Shylock to claim a pound of flesh uh, as collateral and to collect on that and to to in fact procure a pound of flesh? Uh, What's the relevance of this to, to contemporary Jewish medical ethics? The relevance is to organ donation. Are you allowed to sell your body? Can you sell your body? And even before the organ donation debate, the whole concept of who owns your body, was entertained in a fascinating essay by Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin, who is the uh, first editor of the Encyclopedia Talmudit, and in his work called *Or Halacha*, he has an entire essay called *Mishpat Shylock* *Lefiha Halacha*, uh, and a- analyzing the, uh, the the character of Shylock and the concept of, of uh, selling parts of your body or ownership of your body. Um, and here's, so here's what he concludes. He goes, Barur a he's low. Says it's patently obvious and clear to me from a halachic perspective that if Shylock came to the local bazedin and claimed his pound of flesh from Antonio, that the bazedin would not accede to that request. Lo Shylock Neither the neither the, the bazedin, neither the court of uh, uh, the judicial court nor, nor uh, Shylock had any right um, to, uh, to slice a piece of flesh off, off a living being, uh, neither from themselves nor from others. And, and he goes on to say that the body belongs uh, to God, that we are Baileys, we are guardians of the body. We do not own our bodies. Um, and, and consequently, there is a, uh, there is a debate today about our uh, our ownership rights and our ability to sell, let's say I wanted to donate a kidney to somebody, could I ask for compensation for that? <clears throat> so this is a lengthy discussion, but a fascinating, uh, fascinating one. And the conclusion, by the way, in contemporary Judaism is that while in fact uh, we don't believe we own our bodies, and we uh, we agree pretty much. Although there's some debate on the issue, we agree with the conclusions of Rabbi Zevin that we do not own our bodies and and cannot technically receive compensation for something we don't own. Yet, the compensation in organ donation is configured in a slightly different way. There, the compensation for organ donation is not receiving money for the kidney, which you uh, which you are claiming ownership rights over, but rather receiving compensation for. Uh, for lost wages, for uh, for medical bills, etc., and with very very few dissenting uh, opinions, uh, the overwhelming majority of rabbis today would say that it is permitted to receive uh, compensation um, for uh, for donating an organ. Of course, uh, that has to be weighed against whatever the the legal aspects are of, of organ donation in your particular time. Um, let me share with you a few uh, a few. Uh, um, Chapters where where England uh, figures significantly in the response literature, um, continuing on our theme on the influence of the uh, the British kingdom on uh, Jews in medicine and medicine and Jewish medical ethics. Uh, for those of you who are even remotely familiar with the world of Jewish medical ethics, in particular, the, the topics of autopsy and organ donation, the one we just mentioned a, a moment ago, uh, the starting point for the discussions is a responsum from the late 1700s by Rabbi Cheskel Landau, who was a rabbi in Prague, one of the great rabbinic decisors, one of the great rabbinic authorities in the in late 18th century Prague. And the question that was posed him was the following: "Al um, das regarding this uh, this letter that was written to me, benidon regarding the question that came to me from Mikihila Kadosha. London. Where did this question derive from? This question was from the city of London, and what was the case? The case was that the very famous Chuvah, the No Dibihuda, actually originated in the city of London. And what was the case? Um, regarding someone, uh, read in the English of your patron who fell ill with a quote stone in the bladder. Um, and the physicians operated on him as per the customary treatment of this condition. Uh, they were not successful and the patient died. Uh, the sages of the city were asked if it was permissible to dissect the body to determine the cause of illness and death so that the knowledge could be used to better treat future patients with the same condition. Um, it is interesting, the. Uh, the stone in the bladder, if I were to ask you, what do you think a stone in the bladder is, you might say, you know, gallstone, you might say uh, kidney stone. Um, the truth is it was a, a, a related uh, related to the kidney stone, but slightly different. The, the actual condition that he was talking about was a bladder stone, uh, as a stone found in the urinary bladder. Now, bladder stones today are are much much rarer than they used to be. Bladder stones used to be exceedingly common. Bladder stones are exceedingly painful, um, uh, as opposed to a kidney stone, which is found in the uh, in the ureter, which is measured in millimeters. Stones that form in the urinary bladder can be measured in inches and you uh, know grow to the size of a softball. And for those of you in in London, if you go to the Hunterian Museum or the Science Museum, I believe it's on the second floor where they have a uh, uh, exhibits on medicine, you'll invariably see, uh, uh, bladder stones from this, from the 18th century, exactly around the time that the note of was writing. Uh, and the question came from London. Um, and they're huge. They're massive. Uh, and because they're massive, they don't exit the body. They stay there. They cause infection. They cause intermittent obstruction. Extraordinarily painful. So in any case, Surgeons were trying to figure out a way to, uh, to properly operate on these. Parenthetically, we talked about trophening uh, as one of the earliest surgeries known to mankind. Uh, cutting for the stone, the bladder stone, is also one of the very few early surgeries of, of, uh, of medical history. Uh, we have records in the second, first, second century of the common era for descriptions of bladder stone surgery. Um, so it's, it was, uh, it's been going on for thousands of years. We, we've actually talked about the main surgeries today from, from antiquity. Circumcision was also surgery in antiquity. One of the very few triphening, uh, cutting for the bladder stone. Those are the very few surgical procedures from, uh, from antiquity. Um, here's some examples of these stones on the upper left-hand side. Here's the, uh, doctor speaking to the patient says, you've got gallstones, kidney stones, and bladder stones. Welcome to the stone age. Um, but just to give you an idea of of, of how things were in uh, in that period of time, and and the and the risk for this surgery, this is a picture actually of uh, of Frere Jacques, Brother Jacques. You know, I suspect many of you are familiar uh, with the uh, children's song Frere Jacques, Frere Jacques, dormez-vous. So that song is about a, a historical figure, Brother Jacques, who. Uh, had a religious epiphany later in his life, but before he became religious, he was a wandering lithotomist. Lithotomist is one who cuts for the stone. Um, why was why was he wandering? Uh, because his mortality, not his mortality, not his morbidity. His mortality rate uh, was around fifty percent. So uh, wherever he operated, he had to leave relatively quickly uh, because a good good portion of his patients were going to die. Uh, as a result of the surgery, so they were experimenting on surgeries at that time. Uh, at the time of the no Behuda. and at the very time of the Nodibyhuda's writing, around that time, was one of the great surgeons in, the, in London. It was a man by the name of William Cheseldon, um, and here is a, a report of his of his work. This is from Philosophical Transactions. Keep in mind that in those days, Philosophical Transactions was a medical journal. Uh, this is from 1746. A remarkable case of a person cut for the stone in a new way. Uh, commonly called the lateral. So it's possible that William Cheseldon or the likes of William Chesseldon were experimenting with new surgeries for cutting for the stone uh, and, and requested from this Jewish family if they could do an autopsy so they could see if their surgery was uh, was correct uh, and perhaps to benefit others. What was his conclusion? His conclusion was he could only do the surgery if someone would directly and immediately benefit from this procedure. Uh, trans, uh, that responsum has laid the groundwork for discussions about autopsy and organ donation today, uh, and is still the major precedent for organ donation. And organ donation is allowed, you're allowed to harvest organs from someone who is considered legally halakhically dead, which itself is a separate discussion uh, because of the definition of brain death and what the halakhic issues are relating to brain death. Um, but leaving that aside, assuming the person's halakhically dead, however that's to be defined, uh, you're only allowed to harvest that if, if the organ can be used for direct and immediate life-saving benefit for somebody else, which today is the case for, uh, for heart uh, transplants and uh, liver transplants and lung transplants, uh, etc. Uh, we talked a little bit about Shakespeare. Uh, let's take a look at Shakespeare's epitaph and see how that epitaph interfaces with uh, British history and uh, Jewish medical history uh shakespeare's epitaph reads as follows says good friend for j for jesus's sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here blessed be the man that spares these stones and cursed be he that moves my bones so imagine of all the things shakespeare decides to write in his epitaph what does he write about he writes about grave robbing writes about nobody disturbing his bones how does this relate to uh, to Jewish medical history? So, grave robbing, because uh, anatomical dissection became popular really in the uh, early 1500s and onwards in medical training, uh, and they didn't have enough bodies, uh, they would often uh, remove bodies from the graves, uh, so-called grave robbing or body snatching. Uh, these are in the in the United Kingdom ac- actually. These types of uh, of metal. Uh, protectors for coffins uh, to prevent grave robbing. Here's an advertisement from the Woolers British Gazette from 1822. Many hundred dead bodies will be dragged from their wooden coffins this winter for the anatomical lectures and for those who deal in the dead and for the supply of the country practitioner and the Scotch medical schools. The question of the right to inter in iron is now decided. The violation of the sanctity of the grave is said to be needful for the instruction of the medical pupil. But let each one about to inter a mother, husband, child, or friend say, shall I devote this object of my affection to such a purpose? If not, the only safe coffin is Bridgman's patent wrought iron one. charged the same price as the wooden one and superior substitute for lead." So these are the kinds of ads that you would see. Um, They devised even, this is a, a, a torpedo coffin uh which had a, uh, a torpedo which would explode if a person tried to disturb the coffin uh this uh, and and much of the history of grave robbing and the end of grave robbing took place in England uh it really the exposé occurred when these two people uh, uh Burke and Hare who famously had an inn uh in in England where where uh, the derelicts and the uh, prostitutes and the uh uh, would, would often come and spend the night and in, they would actually murder them and provide the bodies for the, uh, for the medical school and the, they get a certain amount of, uh, of compensation for that. And the, hence the expression, Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, Knox the man who buys the beef. So Professor Knox, who's a prominent anatomist at that time, uh, he used to buy bodies from both, uh, both Burke and Hare and to burk, by the way if you look in the dictionary to burk the verb is to suffocate somebody and that's uh birking that's how they used to suffocate their uh, uh their tenants and and provide the bodies how does this interface with the jewish community and i'm looking at the clock here so we'll close in, in uh, five minutes um and i'm happy to answer questions for anybody that has questions the um this is a ticket uh, which was given to someone at the great synagogue in the late uh, 1700s uh, as a reflection of their civic duty at that time. And what is this ticket? It says, uh, you see most of it's printed and left some of it's left. Uh, it's from the Beit Knesset Haggadol, the, uh, the great synagogue in London. And the ticket was issued to a man named Shlomo Schneider. And if you look at the border, you'll see it's a skull and crossbones uh you know and what is this what is this ticket uh, reflect it says shmoa you have been chosen by uh, lottery you shlomo schneider to to stand guard in our community at the cemetery beita is a euphemism uh, the house of life refers to the cemetery uh on the on the on yom hay which is thursday parsha shoftim I think 1795, mean Gluck 8, from 8 o'clock in the evening until Gluck 7, until 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, And if you don't want to do it, you have to get someone to cover your shift. And if you don't get someone to cover your shift, you know, doctors can appreciate the the concept here. If you don't get someone to cover your shift, then you have to pay a a hefty fine. Um, And this notion of grave robbing affected the Jewish community uh and here you have from the london times february tenth, 1800 a uh, mr uh, abraham de matos makato the jew broker died a few days ago directed that his grave may be watched for 12 months and he bequeathed 200 guineas to be divided amongst three men appointed to that duty um, so that was uh, that was very common actually just now, I'm, I'm I sent off to uh, to the London uh, Metropolitan Archives from the Spanish Portuguese Shoal about uh, some grave robbing they had in their cemetery, and I'm awaiting uh, I'm awaiting uh, some documents from that. Um, so I will uh, I will close with this last chapter, um, and apologize that there are others we couldn't get to today, perhaps at another time. Uh, and this is one uh, one you may be familiar with. This is the iconic Jeremy Bentham. Um, the auto icon of Jeremy Bentham, which sits to this very day in uh, University College London. This is the old uh, Jeremy Bentham in the uh, in the dark wooden uh, enclosure case, beautiful uh, wooden case. Today, it's in a more open uh, glass case. Um, but Jeremy Bentham, who is a utilitarian philosopher, actually donated his body specifically for dissection. Uh, because... Uh, because he wanted to show that uh, he believed that the body could be used after death for positive purposes. There weren't enough bodies. That's why they had to do, grave robbing. Uh, By the way, I failed to mention the reason why the Jewish cemeteries were often grave robbed is not for any anti-Semitic reason. It's because the Jews buried quickly and the bodies were fresher for the dissection table. Fascinating uh, fact. But in any case, how does this interface with the Jewish community? Uh, his head began to decay, by the way. This is the original head, which used to sit at his feet. Uh, so they made a wax head. And uh, Madame Tussaud, who's pictured down here, is, is the one, she herself actually made the wax head for, uh, uh, for Jeremy Bentham. But how does this interface with the Jewish community? Uh, it actually entered these responsa literature. Uh, the responsa literature, Diane grossnas a prominent uh, rabbinic judge in, uh, in London, was asked a question about the presence of that body in uh, in university college. And he wrote, uh, I was asked from a number of people who are Kohanim from the priestly tribe. Sorry about that. Um, if they can walk into the halls of the university, because does this body convey Tuma? We talked about Tumat Ohel with respect to Trafening, so he was asked the question: If a cohen is allowed to walk into the building of uh, University College um, in order to uh, to study, uh, not even studying medicine necessarily, although many people did study medicine at University College, but but uh, just to, to train there. Uh, and he actually uh, says that it would be permitted under a certain circumstances, and has a very lengthy analysis about the laws of, uh, of Tuma. Uh, but in any case um i'm just gonna pass through to our last slide and again apologize we we couldn't get to some of this uh, today perhaps another time uh but just to close off to bring it to the to the modern era um through through a jewish history uh the the very founder of modern jewish medical ethics uh was uh, one of the former chief rabbis of england and that is rabbi emmanuel jacobowitz uh, who passed away in 1999 uh, and he was not only knighted by the queen, but he was made a peer uh, a number of years later. And this is his work, uh, Jewish Medical Ethics, uh, which was his dissertation from University College, that same college we just talked about where Jeremy Bentham's uh, body sits. And um, and so ends our, uh, our discussion about the interface between Jews, medicine and the United Kingdom. Uh, and just to conclude on a personal note, the Jewish medical connection to the United Kingdom continues for me personally, because the hospital that I work at is called Montefiore Medical Center, uh, named after Moses Montefiore, who is a great benefactor for many causes, uh, including many, uh, many medical institutions. Uh, so I thank you for the, uh, for the opportunity to join you today. And uh, if anyone has any questions, I'm more than happy to... Uh, to, to entertain any questions about uh, either what we talked about or anything related to Judaism and medicine. Uh, now,
2: Yes, I just wanted to say Elia Sabato. Uh, do you have a tradition that it is Sabato? Because if it is a Spanish tradition, I think it would be Sabato. If it is Italian, it would be Elia Sabato.
1: Uh, Good question. I'm not not sure. Um, I'm not sure. I I will look into it.
2: There are people in the Campania region that um, have a first name, Sabato, and they are not Jewish. For example, there was a theorist of race who was, even after the World War, was a professor at the University of Rome of biology. But he was for cultural racism. Device uh, was uh, vicious during the racial laws, and his name was Sabato Visco. Even though he was not a Jewish, it is just part of Campania outside Na- Naples that have some non-Jews who have that uh, that name.
1: Very interesting.
2: You said very in uh, in uh, Philadelphia there was a very famous. Uh, Uh, acting minister, he was an ordained rabbi, but didn't want to be considered a a rabbi, and his first name was Sabato in the 19th century.
1: Very good, I'll have to look into it, Denison. That's right.
0: Thank you, you. anyone else? Okay, Um, so thank you so much uh, for joining us. I highly recommend you check out our website at thechaburah.com and also to check out the Torah Terefua Group, which is a forum providing medical professionals access to senior poskim and those with experience in the field of medical halacha. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Dr. Reichman, for being with us. Thank you. Was, uh, thank you. My pleasure. Insightful. Real real. Z'chus. And, uh, we hope to have thank you many you. more times with us. Lila <laughs> to everybody. Thank you very much. Well,
1: too. Tov, everybody.
2: Bye bye.